Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I pray that as we undertake this uh, weighty topic, you would draw near to us now and be the teacher in this room. We want to be a God-taught people. I pray that you would guard me from error, help me to be faithful to your word. Deliver us from the fiery darts of the evil one who would shoot at our minds and our hearts and grant that we would be full of faith and hope and joy in you. Would you bring about your solid purposes to build preachers, I pray, for the glory of your name, for the good of your church and for the reaching of the nations. And so come and help me now, I pray. Grant me a, a fullness and a special anointing for this high calling here. And may each of these brothers and sisters have attentive minds and docile, humble hearts. And so accomplish your good purposes and may the ripple effect go for decades and for thousands of miles, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Those ROM lectures in 1994 were significant for me because um, I, I prepared them especially for this group and it was a very telling moment in my own experience. I was 14 years into the ministry there and to sit down for the first time really for an extended period of time and labor and try to ask what do I do and uh, define preaching for myself was very significant. And so as I contemplated coming back here to do these, I thought I really would like to do that again. And so I devoted myself to three new preparations. Only there's one problem. Uh, I didn't communicate er evidently accurately to whoever what I was going to talk about. So I am going to talk about something totally different than what's been advertised. And so let me uh, describe for you where I'm going, since none of you have seen any uh, proper, truthful advertising. <laughs> the title over these three talks is called, Preachers Do Not Begrudge the Seminary of Suffering. And the first message today is called, Preaching in the Problem of Suffering. At 12 o'clock or whenever, the next message will be the suffering of the preacher and preaching, and then tomorrow's message will be the suffering of the people and preaching. So, you can see where I'm going and that it's different, and uh, I thought I had emailed it in back in the spring, but we didn't connect. So, if you want to leave and go someplace else to find somebody who will talk about the pursuit of whatever I was supposed to talk about, <laughs> you're free to do that and I won't be offended. It's important that I begin with five assumptions because um, everything relates to everything and everything has to be uh, dependent on some undefended assumptions. So I'm going to mention five assumptions about preaching 
and since I don't have time to defend them, point you toward the kind of defense that I would make if I had time. Assumption number one. Preaching is expository exaltation. That's what I argued for in 1994. It is not merely exposition, and it is not merely exaltation. It is expository exaltation. We exposit Scripture, and we exult over the beauty and the truth and the worth of the reality in the text. And so we come with explanation and we come with celebration. And if you separate the two, it is not preaching. Celebration is not preaching and explanation is not preaching. Celebrative explanation is preaching and explanatory celebration is preaching. They rise together. Clear reflection and deep affection over God's Word is what preaching is. It's heralding, not just teaching or explaining. There's a manifest sense in the preacher as he preaches of the wonder of what he's saying about God. That's assumption number one. Number two, preaching is a normative event in the gathered church. When I say preaching is a normative event, I I don't mean teaching is a normative event. I am distinguishing between keruso and didasco. There's a difference between hear ye, hear ye, hear ye, thus saith the Lord, and This verb means that. There's a difference there. They overlap, but the hear ye, hear ye, thus says the Lord is preaching, heralding the Word of God, not just explaining it, is normative, I'm assuming, in the gathered meeting of the church. If I were to defend that, which I would be happy to do in six years from now, you wanted me to, I would go to Nehemiah, I would go to the synagogue and Jesus' use of it, I would go to the ministry of Jesus, I would go to the ministry of the apostles, but I would particularly go to 2 Timothy 4.2, where Paul commands the young overseer of the church in Ephesus, preach the word, keruxon ton logon, not teach, preach it, herald it. He says to this steady state, day in and day out, bread and butter, overseer of the church, preach the word. And I would argue substantially, that is, from the nature of the reality we're dealing with, that there's such a unique weight and magnitude and beauty and worth to what preaching is all about, that it calls for a special kind of communication. Preaching is not any ordinary kind of communication. You know, the last time I was here, there was a real pulpit. And as I saw this little twinky thing up here, I thought to myself, I wonder if that betrays a loss here. That you really think preaching is just a mode of communication. And the more you can get out of the way between pastors' pants and their people, the better. Because really, it's just communication. And whatever works in communication, that's what preaching is. That's absolutely false. 
Preaching is not an ordinary means of communication. That's assumption number three. I mean two. That's two? Where am I? That's assumption number two. Number three. The aim of preaching is the glory of God through Jesus Christ. The glory of God is the aim of all preaching. All preaching is God-centered, Christ-exalting. God Himself is either the explicit focus of it or the manifest air that this sermon breathes. He is the central topic of all preaching. And if you take up another topic, which you, of course, must do, you will take it all the way up into His presence so that what the people hear from you about that topic is the way God relates to that topic. And if you deal with the topic any other way, you're not preaching. Preaching is about God and how He relates to everything in the world. Or you could say preaching is about everything in the world and how it relates to God. And if you just try to do another kind of thing and communicate about those things and say nice pieces of advice about those things, and God is left out of account over here, I wouldn't call that preaching. The aim of all preaching is the glory of God. He made us for His glory. He chose us for His glory. He predestined us for His glory. The universe and the church are radically, absolutely God-centered. Everything, every thought, every act, every feeling, every object gets its meaning from God. Nobody understands anything except superficially unless they understand it in relation to God. Preachers are not supposed to be superficial. Therefore, everything relates to God and His glory is the aim of all you say and all you do as a preacher. Your aim is to produce a God-besotted people who by their God-besottedness echo and reflect and have the aroma of the glory of God in their lives. They live for the glory of God. Assumption number four. God is most glorified in our people when our people are most satisfied in Him. God is most glorified in our people when our people are most satisfied in Him. Begrudging submission to a king does not reflect the worth of the king like glad submission to a king. The glory of a king shines in the gladness of his people. This is why God commands you in Psalm 100, serve the Lord with gladness. You don't do that, you disobey and dishonor God. Psalm 37.4, delight yourself in the Lord. Delight in God displays His excellence. God gets only half His glory from people who know Him well and do not feel Him well. Now this is so central to what I'm going to say and so foundational to everything I do, I'm going to let Jonathan Edwards speak for a moment here, because he's my hero and says it better. And I want you to know that I didn't make this up. The only thing that Edwards didn't do is make it rhyme. Here's what he said. 
God glorifies himself toward the creatures in two ways. One, by appearing to their understanding. Two, in communicating himself to their hearts. In their rejoicing and delighting in and enjoying the manifestations which he makes of himself. God is glorified not only by his glory being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. When those that see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. His glory is then received by the whole soul, both by the understanding and by the heart. God made the world that he might communicate and the creature receive his glory, and that it might be received both by the mind and the heart. He that testifies of his idea of God's glory doesn't glorify God so much as he that testifies also of his delight in it. End quote. I have nothing more to say besides what Jonathan Edwards said. And all I've tried to do with my life and ministry is to give expression to that. God is most glorified in your people when they are most satisfied in Him. Assumption number five. Suffering is a universal human experience designed by God for His glory, but endangering every Christian's faith. Suffering is a universal human experience designed by God for His glory, but endangering every Christian's faith. Everybody you will ever preach to will suffer. Sooner or later, the curse that is on creation will come around to every creature. Where did it come from? Where did global suffering come from, and the Bible is very clear on this, it comes from God because of sin. Listen, Romans 5, Romans 5, 18, through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, and that condemnation is spoken of here not as a natural consequence of sin but as a judicial consequence of sin. God did this. Romans 8, 18, Paul speaks about sufferings of this present time, this present age, from the fall to the consummation, the suffering. And then he explains like this in verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Who's that? It's not Satan, because he didn't subject it in hope. In hope. It's not Adam. He didn't subject it in hope. One person subjected this creation to futility judicially in hope of the glory of God, and that is God. All suffering is from God.
The futility of creation is designed by God for the hope of glory. This is what Paul means in Romans 8.21 where he says, the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Not only this, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we ourselves groan within ourselves waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. God's design in all our sufferings is the hope of the glory of the children of God. But oh, how different is the design of Satan in our suffering. Satan would sift us like wheat. He would chew us to pieces in the jaws of the lion's mouth of suffering and strain out every faith in the goodness of God. But here's the question. You need to think about this. If Satan has such a strong hand in this, why doesn't God just dispatch him to hell and the lake of fire now? Why? He could do that. He will do it. He will cast Satan and all the devils that wreak so much havoc in the world into the lake of fire, and he will not in any way at that moment infringe upon their will. And if he can do it then, he can do it today. And he doesn't do it. Why? Because he can't? No way. One word, one word from the Lord Jesus and devils depart into pigs. One word. Who is this who teaches with authority and the demons obey him? One word from heaven. And this world is cleaned of all demonic activity. And he doesn't do it. Why? Because all suffering is for the glory of God, including satanic suffering. And many texts you could go to to show it. Those are my five assumptions. Now an inference I draw. And it's the main point of these messages. If the aim of preaching is the glory of God, and if God is most glorified in your people when they are most satisfied in Him, and if the universal experience of human beings is suffering, and if that suffering undermines or tends to undermine their faith and thus their satisfaction in God, preaching must aim week in and week out to help our people be satisfied in God through suffering. Indeed, not just through suffering, we must help them week in and week out by our preaching to see suffering as a means of the glory of God. As part of why they should be satisfied in God. We must build into their minds and hearts a vision of God and His ways such that they see suffering not only as a threat to their satisfaction, which it is, 
but also as a means to their satisfaction in God, which it is, we must preach so as to make suffering look normal, not surprising, purposeful. And we have a huge culture against us here. The American culture is designed at every point to build the opposite worldview into our heads, avoid all choices that might bring discomfort, maximize ease, maximize comfort, escape pain, escape suffering. And then you add to that cultural force the natural impulse of my heart and your heart to hate deferred gratification and to want to be immediately pleased in my body and in my mind. You put those two things together and you have an absolutely impossible task for preaching. It's the hardest work in the world. You want to try to produce a people, a, a bunch of American people, if you minister in America, and I don't suppose it's that much different perhaps in most places, although I was talking to some guys over lunch yesterday who just got back from China and they understand a lot more. It's the hardest work in the world because you want to produce a people who count it all joy when they meet various trials, who exult in their afflictions, who rejoice in the plundering of their property, and who say in the end, to die is gain. And that's unheard of. That's just crazy. Have you ever met anybody like that? That's normal New Testament Christianity. And it's impossible. Which is why I say, preaching is not an ordinary means of communication. Getting degrees in communication at a university has almost nothing to do with the task of preaching. The real essence and difficulty and power and crisis of preaching is all about doing the impossible. It's about taking a rich young ruler and by what you say, causing him to fall out of love with his money and fall into love with Jesus who says, sell it all and follow me and I've got no place to lay my head. How do, you, how do you do that? And Jesus said very plainly, with man this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Preaching is not ordinary communication. It is availing yourself through the Word by the Spirit of the power of Almighty God to bring about impossible things in people's minds and hearts, namely, delight in God in suffering. And that's the task. No place does the impossibility of preaching come clearer than when you tackle the problem of suffering. How will we accomplish the great end of preaching in the face of suffering? the glory of God, a satisfied people in the glory of God. Now, that's what these talks are all about. Let me step back and ask this question. Why did I choose to address this theme in the Ram lectures? Several convictions uh, drove me, have been driving me. Uh, if you've noticed, 
and I don't suppose you have, um, that in, in the, the reissuings of my books, like Desiring God, I put in a chapter on suffering. When I wrote the missions book, which I wrote just through the woods over there in an empty apartment, 1992 and 3, a, a chapter on suffering. Future Grace, a chapter on suffering. There's been several years here where the Lord has just been unwilling to let me go on this issue. And conviction one is coming to Christ means more suffering, not less. And if you preach anything otherwise, you lie and mislead. Coming to Christ truly means more suffering, not less in this world. Unless you hate your life in this world, you won't gain it for eternal life. John 12, 25. Another conviction, suffering is normal, not exceptional. Another conviction, we will suffer. You must suffer. And most Americans are not prepared for this. They're not ready for it in mind or in heart. The people in your church are not ready for this. They don't believe this. They don't want to experience this. They don't want to hear you talk about this probably. And therefore, the glory of God and the honor of Christ, the stability of the church, the readiness of the church to finish the Great Commission, which will require martyrs, is at stake in whether we can, by preaching, shape a people who will so be satisfied in God that come what may, whether life or death, will say, Christ is gain. Christ is gain. Whether I'll lose everything else, Christ is gain. And when we have a, a people like that, then God will be glorified and Christ will be honored and the church will not be a weakling in an atmosphere of ease and the completion of the Great Commission will happen. Consider now, let's take a few of those. Consider the suffering, the certainty of suffering that's going to come to your people. I mean, this has an impact on your responsibility. I'm talking to future preachers here. What are you going to do about that? Your people are going to suffer. What are you going to do about it before it happens? Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Really? Jesus says, foxes have holes Birds of the air have nests. Son of man doesn't have any place to lay his head. Really? You preach like that when you call people to Christ? Really? You're not sure you want to come, do you? It's only because we live in America that we don't have a clue about these things. And we've so distorted and transformed the gospel to make it an immediate gratification of felt needs that we can't even imagine the way Jesus called for disciples. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign you, his household? Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in His steps. Exactly the opposite of what some preach. Namely, He took your suffering so that you don't have to. 
false. Exactly the opposite. That's 1 Peter 2.21. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though something strange were happening to you. Almost everybody in my church thinks it's strange when they suffer. And they tend to get upset at God. What's wrong? Why? Where have they been taught? How have they been prepared? We are his fellow heirs, heirs with Christ, if we suffer with him. All who desire to lead a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I protest, Paul says, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, I die every day. We are of all men most to be pitied if there is no resurrection. Zig Ziglar said the other day, if it proves to be false on his last day, it was a good life. Something's wrong. Paul never talked that way. If it proves to be false on my last day, I was a fool to choose this life. So what's your life? Are you going to go out and sell the gospel to say it's the good life? It's the good American life. You won't get AIDS. Well, maybe you won't because you're not caring for the AIDS. Orphans of Africa. Ten million of them. Are you going to sell it like that? Or are you going to preach for the glory of God? And then after the certainty of suffering comes the certainty of death. It's appointed unto man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. I've been a pastor now for 20 years, and I've walked through the last months, the last weeks, the last days, the last hours of dying with lots of people. It's never pretty. It's never pretty. One or two have died beautifully. Horrible. And I expect it to be horrible for most of you. Everybody you preach to is going to die. How are you going to help them? Get ready. Well, you say, well, we just won't talk about that. All of them are going to die. They're all going to suffer. Thou to sweep men away, they are like a dream, like grass. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. The years of our life are threescore and ten, or if by reason of strength fourscore, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. So I ask you, future preachers, What does a pastoral heart of wisdom do when it sees that suffering is inevitable, necessary, and purposeful for all your people and death is coming for all of them? What does a pastoral heart of wisdom, get a heart of wisdom, do? And the answer is given two verses later in Psalm 90 that I just read from. 
in verses 13 and 14. It goes like this. It's a prayer. Have pity on thy servants and satisfy us in the morning with thy steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad in thee all our days. It talks about the futility and the toil and the pain and the frustration of life. And then we're all swept away in death. All of our people will be swept away. And says, now, look at that. Think about that. And get a heart of wisdom. And then he says, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad in you, in you alone, you alone, all our days. And I think that's the way you get a heart of wisdom. Or that's the way a heart of wisdom responds for the sake of your people. You begin to pray for your people. Oh God, grant that they would be satisfied with you and not with new computers and family, and job, and health, and car, and a new room on the house, and a cabin by the lake, and a little sex, and a little food, and a little esteem in the guild. God, please, have mercy upon my people, and prepare them to suffer, and prepare them to die by answering this prayer. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love because, as Psalm 63.3 says, the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. The steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. So you still have it when you lose life and everything that you lose when you lose life. Which is everything but God. And then, you don't just pray, you preach. You preach to that end. You live to that end. Why? Because if you leave your people seeking satisfaction in family and job and leisure and all those things that I mentioned, if you leave them <coughs> seeking satisfaction in those and you don't cultivate satisfaction in God, what will they do when suffering and death strip it all away? You know what they'll do? They'll get bitter. They'll get angry. And they'll develop whole theologies about it's right. How it's right to be angry with God. I get so sick of those kinds of funerals. It's never right to be angry with God. Ever. 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 And yet they will be embittered and angry and depressed. And what will that mean then for the great aims of preaching? The worth, the beauty, the goodness, the power, the wisdom of God will all be concealed in a sea of murmuring and complaining or even cursing. But, Here's the alternative. 
with this at close. If you have prayed well as a preacher, satisfy them and me in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice in you and be glad all our days. If you have prayed well, and if you have preached well, commending to them the panorama of the perfections and glories and excellencies of God such that they are more satisfied in Him than anything and can say with the psalmist, the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. And if you have lived well, rejoicing in your own afflictions, bearing all of their difficulties and weaknesses and criticisms and slanders and gossips and failures, gladly, with no anger and no bitterness and no recriminations and retaliations, then they may be satisfied in God. And if they're satisfied in God, God will be glorified in them, especially in their sufferings. And if God is glorified in them, the great aims of preaching have been achieved. One of the things it takes is to linger a long time in a place. It doesn't happen overnight. Let's pray. Father in heaven, America is a hard place to be a Christian, a real Christian. So I, have, I pray you have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. And forgive us and purify our minds and purify our hearts. We are far often from where we should be and the risks we take and the love we show and the joy in suffering that we don't have in you. So, Lord, I'm asking for miracles in these hours, in my life and in these friends. Miracles of a transformed Copernican revolution mind so that our joys are not reposing in the things of the world continually, but that they repose and rest in the things that are above, where Christ is our life and is seated at the right hand of your power. Guide us through these hours, I pray. Apply these things to us and help us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.